<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. For as long as I can remember, horror has been the red-headed stepchild of cinema. It's a gutter genre, not respectable, and certainly not worthy of serious consideration. The authors of scary books, the writers and directors of horror films and television, even the actors who portray them, were never held in the same esteem as those in the world of respectable drama. That never really bothered me. From the time I embraced the genre as a child all the way to now, I've always felt like an outsider, and that's okay. I never expected our genre to be embraced by the normal trappings of Hollywood adulation and awards. That's why our genre exists, isn't it? To confront us with the unsavory, the unsafe, and the uncomfortable. Would gowns and tuxedos be a bad thing for horror? Well, in a way, yeah, I think they would. In 1992, however, Silence of the Lambs, a movie no one could deny was a horror film, swept the Academy Awards. Yes, it had movie stars, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, among others, and was based on a best-selling novel, but still. It was about serial killing, cannibalism, and deep, dark shit. It was great for the genre, but it really didn't change things. But this year, not only did a horror film win Best Picture, but it was a monster movie. Guillermo del Toro's brilliant The Shape of Water even had monster sex in it. Guillermo won for Best Director, too. But wait, there's more. Jordan Peele's trenchant, funny, frightening shotgun blast to racism was nominated in several categories and won Best Original Screenplay. You can call it a social satire if you want to and try to yank it out of the genre that we all love so much, but this, too, is, at its heart, a horror movie. Peele and Del Toro are two of the most outspoken practitioners of our beloved terror territory, and these great films have been embraced by the formal film crowd. Let's hope this is a good thing overall, in that it will stimulate the creation of more and more genre cinema at all budgets. Films by great actors, writers, directors, and artists who might not have been able to get their work off the ground because of our heretofore disrespected brand of movies. But please, let's not let it sand the edges off of what is meant to be tough territory out there. Let's not get genteel about what should be a confrontational brand of cinema. There's all kinds of horror out there, and let's keep it that way. Let's not let horror get too civilized. One of the filmmakers who helped to change our genre in the late 1970s was Sean S. Cunningham. His film Friday the 13th practically created the horror franchise. As director and producer of some of our most fearsome cinema nightmares, he's sure to have a lot to say about how we got from here to there after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So... Were you always a fan of cinema from childhood? And if you were, was it dark cinema? Um, I'm one of those guys that, that grew up without being a fan of, of the movies. I became a fan of the movies later on. Um, was it a business decision or was, w w was it a, a way to make money? Or was it that you developed a passion for it later uh, in your life? Well, two things. One is I... I uh, <clears throat> Actually, when I grew up, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And mm -hmm. I, was, uh, I was in pre-med, and in my senior year, I decided, eh, I really, I love the idea of being a doctor, but I'm not crazy about chemistry. <laughs> I'm not crazy <laughs> about science part all the other, the science part just gets in the way. But the blood was good. It, yeah. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, I gave up that idea, and I, I had uh, <clears throat> gotten bitten by theater bug in college and and um and i wound up going to stanford for uh, for drama mm -hmm. drama really <laughs> yeah, yes drama. as an actor or uh, as a writer well as actor not really as an actor but a, the the courses for directing and and i guess acting but um 
And it was just as, you know, pretentious as you would, ex- you know, <laughs> you would expect. And I was fortunate enough that a lot of the people at Stanford and Franklin Marshall when I went to school all went up to Ashland, Oregon, where we did Shakespeare. Ah, the and famous so, Ashland, Oregon fam- space. Shakespeare. Yeah. And um, so I was up there, uh, it was the tricentennial mm-hmm. of the Globe Theater or something. And um, it was six months of doing Shakespeare and, you know, related plays every night. This was the late 60s? Yeah. No, early 60s. Early 60s. Early, okay. Yeah, you know, 63, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I, I really I really enjoyed that. I didn't know what I was ever going to do with it, but I really enjoyed it. And um, <clears throat> I went to New York and I was able to get a job on a national company of the Merry Widow. Ah. <laughs> And I had the, I had the job of being dresser. Now that's somebody who takes care of somebody else's, you know, costumes. The and Tom wardrobe. Courtney yeah, role. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, and now, as it turns out, this was very much a um, a, a friend of a friend. I got the job, and the th- and he had a dresser in his contract, albeit. He had no costume changes, <laughs> so so I got to go on the road to Mary Widow, and I. Um, I became exposed, I suppose, to show business mm-hmm. versus drama. Mm-hmm. And it was my introduction to the, you know, the, the great big dazzling world of, of, of um, Broadway theater. And it, it, was a, it was a really good experience. And I was fortunate enough to, with nothing, no, nothing but time on my hands, I got to know the production stage manager who mm. runs everything behind the curtain. And I said, how do you do that? (laughs) And as it turns out, he took me under his wing. And by the time we finished the tour, I I really knew what he was doing. So the mechanics of it had more of an appeal to you than the performing part? I had no, 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 I I had, I've never had any desire to be an actor. Uh Um, But anyway, I, uh, I wound up, um, becoming his assistant at City Center. And uh, a year and a half later, I was the youngest production stage manager they ever had at City Center. Wow. We doing uh, shows in repertory like uh, Pal Joey and uh, Kiss Me Kate. So you were doing musical theater. Yeah, big, I mean, big music, big yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, nice. But that was, that, and, uh, you know, it was at that point that I got married. And... Um, uh, it was a, you know, I made my living in the theater such as it was. And I was... That's uh, quite an accomplishment in itself. It, yeah. <laughs> in and, New York, particularly. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I uh, <clears throat> uh, looked around and, and I was uh, fortunate to have, have been successful as far as that went. Uh, but I looked, looked ahead and I said, well, if I keep doing what I'm doing, what will I do? I'll get maybe a hit show. If you get a hit show as a production stage manager, you you basically go to work eight times a week, um, year in and year out. And I th- thought I'd go mad if I had to do that. <laughs> Plus, I was already making as much money as you could make in, in that world. So you'd hit the top. Yeah, I'd hit the top. <laughs> and, you know, I was wondering about a gold ring and how would you do that and so on. So what happened is that before I ever thought of making a movie, I was – I was in um, theater, and the mechanics of theater were such that, um, as, I'm sorry, back up. I said, maybe I could become a producer. What does that mean? Mm. So I went out and did a bunch of homework. Less work. The more well, you get paid, the less work. Exactly. <laughs> something. I didn't, I didn't know quite what it was going to be, but in, in the most basic way, you'd find a script that you liked, and then you'd find actors and you'd rehearse it, and you'd get costumes and sets, and 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 you'd put it on. And at that point... What was you know, the money part? Did you take that into well, consideration? Well, yeah, I did. And, yeah. and so you, then you start to do the math. You say, well, we've got 99 seats. Now, if we, if we sell all of those seats and we're sold out, that'll give us 800 tickets. How much are we going to sell the tickets for? And how much does this cost? And how much does that cost? And I realized, huh... There's not a lot of money left <laughs> over if, if, if you do it that way. And yeah. um, so then I thought, well, what if you were just to make a movie? 
you do the same thing. You get a script that you like and get some actors and you rehearse it. You get costumes, a set. But instead of being locked into this, this event every night, it, you know, it would be done once in the can and then, then your overhead is done and then you could go out and, and put it around the world. I said, well, that makes a lot more sense than trying to do off-Broadway. So that was the thinking that, that ultimately brought me into, uh, into making movies. So then, it was a business decision in a, in, in a large sense that you could do this creative thing and make a living doing it that did not have a ceiling that was so low. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I came to it late. So um, I always had to um, approach movies as a way to support me and support my family. And very soon I had four or five people all looking to me to, you know, to be the breadwinner. Mm -hmm. So it certainly colored a lot of the decisions I made. And to this day, it colors a lot of the decisions. But that's how I started to do it. But having started to do it, then I said, oh, my God, I've got to get an education and and um, had to figure out, you know, how to do this thing. Well, was there a movie that you saw that looked like something you, you thought, I can do this, we can hand make something like this and and move from there? Uh, no. I mean, what it was is um, it was the early 70s and... What had happened, the movies that you saw in theaters were big Hollywood movies. Right, studio pictures um, for the most part. And, uh, but there had just been the invention of the 16-millimeter camera with fast film and the notion of documentarians going around and shooting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we don't need no stinking lights. All right. <laughs> we got ASA 400 film here. And we, you know, no, no stopping us. So that Grain so, like golf balls, yeah, but still. Yeah. still yeah. Well, that was the look. Yeah, you know. yeah, verite. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was... Uh, uh, Which that, means that was truth from, anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I, I guess when I was cutting my teeth, it was in the documentary field and, and trying to find out, you know, what is all this edge numbering and why do I have to mm-hmm. pay for that? And, 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 and. So uh, it was very, very hands-on. And um, that's really where I started to figure out how different movies are from theater. And right. it, they seem so similar, but they're so enormously, the, the chasm is, is just enormous. And uh, to well, your this first, day... Your first narrative film that you directed, you co-directed with Wes, right? How, how did you meet Wes Craven? I was but together. Tell me about yeah. what together was. Oh, well, together was a uh, was the most expensive family film ever made. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a documentary uh, about uh, about sex and marriage and monogamy, and uh, I don't know. It had Kama Sutra thrown in there, and all of the extras were people that I knew from from uh, Connecticut where I lived and my brothers and sister and their family and friends. And we just put this thing together and it, uh, uh, it, <laughs> it was a fluky, strange sort of, it's not really a marriage manual movie, but it was, you know, it was about, you know, sexuality. And this was the, this was the seventies and it was at the beginning of the seventies. So the whole, right? the whole Esalen and, Right. And, and and Rolfing, oh my God! All of the all of the different different right. things were out there, and it came down with kind of a very conservative point of view. Finally, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, a pro monogamy marriage movie, yes, yeah, more or less. Uh, From and, the future masters of horror uh, yeah. <laughs> comes together, <laughs> right? And so when I was putting that thing together, Wes was down the hall working as a cab driver. He was also syncing up dailies, and we met. And he said that sure, he would love to help. And, uh, and he did. And we, um, we wound up getting locked into that building, I don't know how many weekends, but they used to lock the building up at, at 8 o'clock on Friday night and not open it till Monday morning. So you'd be in there for the weekend. You'd buy all the potato chips and <laughs> soda that you could imagine and just stay in there and work and work. So it was it. like being in a bank vault that was time-locked <laughs> for the very, weekend. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's actually true. Uh, but that's what we did, and we became close friends. And the movie, against all odds, was successful. Um, and uh, the the people who exploited it in the first place owned movie theaters in Massachusetts area. And they said, hey, you want to make another movie? 
And Wes and I look at each other and say, yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, what's it going to be? We'll get back to you on that. You know? <laughs> and, so this uh, was leading us up to what became a classic and a very infamous movie that you and you produced and Wes directed. Right. It was infamous, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah. Was, uh, it, 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 had a, it was ironic in that um, you knew Wes. And yeah. Wes is so sweet and such a gentle and kind guy. We're talking about Last House on the Left. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you don't put him together with the, the, the gritty, ugly, you know, aspects of, of, uh, of horror stuff. But we had gone to, we had gone to see one of, the, one of the Clint Eastwood Westerns. And um, we where I was started to count the number of people that got killed. It was like, bang, bang, you're dead. And four people would fall over. And it was like... Some, some silly number, like 150 people died through the course of this. And at that time, when somebody got shot and killed in a movie, there's no blood, there's no violence, there's no regret. They just fall over and they're dead. Right. And, and, uh, and, but we thought that that was sort of numbing the audience. Mm. And, and Wes said that, you know, if you took something like that and you made it very personal, it would really screw with people's heads and, and that that would make make the audience understand that this is really terrible stuff that we're sort of, you know, tossing, tossing away. That was the, his initial um, impetus. And, and we used um, a Bergman film called Virgin Spring right. as, as pretty much the, the framework that we would put the story in. Without telling anybody, so he didn't have to pay for it. Oh, no, 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 yeah. And it was wound up being plenty far away from Virgin Spring. But, I would say so. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's how our, you know, uh, my, uh, and Wes's too, are, are beginning to understand narrative form. Did you realize at the time the movie was being made how visceral and hard to watch an audience would find this? No. Um, we had no idea. We didn't know what we were doing. When you're making it, you don't really feel no, those things, you don't right? See, you don't see it that way. And, and it had never been done. Um, we were just, I mean, we were, I think of it looking back on it, it was like we were kids running around at night with cans of paint, you know, doing graffiti on, on, uh, on the walls, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. we'd run, run inside. And, and you were the naughty just, kids. <laughs> yeah, really, just, just going out and trying to have fun, do this thing called making a movie. And, and uh, when, it, when it was finally, um, you know, Complete. put together, uh, it, was, it was difficult to look at. It was like, holy shit, this is, <laughs> what have we done here? And the 16 millimeter grainy look to it makes it feel documentary-like, it which did. is much more painful to sit through. Yeah, and, and it was, um, you know, we did a bunch of things right for probably the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but we made this movie, and then everything that followed, you know, corrected off mistakes that we made there and then you make another set of mistakes and learn from right. that and make some more mistakes and learn from that and and that's that's how we sort of stumbled forward from that from and that it was also the beginning of great horror marketing campaigns it's only a movie it's all, keep repeating to yourself it's only a movie it's only a movie it's only a movie <laughs> tell me what that was like once you'd created this visceral hard-hitting low-budget film that felt so real to then get it out to an audience. Yeah. We had, uh, we had a couple of titles, and I think that, that our A title, the, thought, the thing that we thought was going to put us over the top, um, was called Sex Crime of the Century. <laughs> oh. You know, and was, we were thinking specifically of driving audiences, and it wasn't just the sex crime. It was the biggest, oh, the worst. The you know, and... and our investors had drive-ins in theaters, and yeah, people didn't come. And we oh. tried another time. Oh, it had actually been released with that title. Well, yeah, I mean... Test marketing. Yeah, yeah, test marketing. Yeah, that's what we should have called it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we um, tried... Uh, I think another one was Krug and Company, and maybe a third. And I don't know, it was maybe six or eight weeks into the process, I got a call from the advertising guy, and he said, Sean, um, I was thinking... What do you think of the title "Last House on the Left"? Mm -hmm. And I said, what? <laughs> "I don't know what that even means." There's you know? nothing to and it. And he yeah. said, I, "I, you know, I, I just, I said, but 
what we had tried certainly hadn't hadn't worked effectively. He said, well, let's give it a shot. Now, in watching this uh, with his wife, I think, or somebody, uh, she was, kept hiding her eyes and just couldn't watch it. And he was saying, it, it's only a movie. It's only, you know, just keep telling ah. yourself it's only a movie. And out of that came the it's only a movie thing. And that, um, more than I think, more than the title, is the thing that really sold it. And so it resonated with the audience. Yeah, it really yeah. did. And, and, um, and that was, I, I think that was the key to its success. It certainly wasn't star power. Well, and timing is everything, too. Here we're coming in the early 70s, the Hammer films were dying out. Mm-hmm. There were all the Dracula movies. There had been many of them made by the Hammer group and Christopher Lee movies. And, you know, European castles and the 1700s mm-hmm. and all that were kind of coming to an end. I mean, it started long before that with Psycho kind of shook everybody up. And, and the idea of the guy next door being dangerous mm-hmm. and it's not supernatural anymore. So here comes Last House on the Left and then later Halloween. Um, then you came up with the Ne Plus Ultra of, <laughs> of, of slasher movies. Mm-hmm. Um, the first real franchise horror movie in Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. I remember very well going to the theaters and seeing the trailer where it just counted off. 13 deaths in the trailer, <laughs> and it would show you how 13 deaths took place in this movie. So tell me how you came up with that and, and, and how it came to be. And it was the first, it was a Paramount release. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a long question. Yeah, well, there. yeah. It's, uh, but it, it, it came from the fact that I had done a couple of children's movies uh, in Connecticut, mm-hmm. and, I, and I liked them both. Uh, and one was about baseball, and the, the second one was... That was the, Here Come the Tigers? It was. Yeah. Okay. And the second one was the, was we thought was going to be the one that, that would really work, because it was going to be about soccer. Ah. And we, we went out to uh, New Jersey and shot in the soccer stadium and, you know, had all of this stuff. Manny's Orphans? Manny's yeah. Orphans. Yeah. So uh, we got it all together. It was a nice little movie. It had no stars in it. We didn't quite know what we were going to do with it. We didn't... I didn't have a quote-unquote hook um, attached to it and, um, and started making lists of titles and just sort of brainstorming and what could we call it different, just making list after list. And in, in the process of making that list, Friday the 13th comes into my head and I say, shit, you know, if I had a movie called Friday the 13th, I'd know how to sell that, you know, but I don't know how to sell this soccer film. And... Turns out that the soccer film got optioned by United Artists. They thought it would it could be used as a model for a TV pilot, mm. but it was going to take six to nine months to make that happen. And you know, we were like this gang of people in Connecticut trying to figure out what we could do next. And we didn't get the money back from the soccer movie, so mm. we didn't know what we were going to do about it. And um, I said, "Huh." What if we try Friday the Thirteenth? Now I had stayed away from from trying to do gritty um, uh, horror stuff like Last House because there was a real backlash uh, of what kind of person would do that, and and you know um, I think we've all felt that. Yeah, and so <laughs> we've all uh, been on and, the receiving end of that. I was I was reluctant, you know, to go back there, but. Um, I had this title, Friday the 13th. And so it became a question of, can you use it? And what is it? Well, it's going to be strange and, and extreme and, and it'll be scary. You know, black cat, go, you know, walk under a ladder, whatever it is. But how, how can we find out if we could use it? And my idea was, all right, we'll take out a full page ad in Variety. And it'll be great big block letters crashing through glass. And it says, Friday the 13th, the most terrifying film ever made. (laughs) And this is in the spring. or Actually, it was 4th of July. And coming December. And I figured, well, let's see what happens and see if, you know, the studios call us up or we're going to get lawyers' letters. What's going to happen? And I got none of that. But what I got is a whole bunch of interest from people around the world that just somehow or other said, we'd love to see it. And suddenly, you know, it, it caught its own momentum. And so we said, all right, let's go. And 
I turned to Victor Miller, who was a friend who had, uh, I had known for several years, and we had worked on the two children's movies together, and uh, asked him uh, if he wanted to, you know, work on this stuff and we'll make a horror film. He says, yeah, I'd love to. He says, but I don't know how to make a horror film. And I said, well, um, we'll figure it out. And, and it really came down to if we tell these little stories – Maybe at a summer camp, it had to be, you know, it had to be remote and it had to have lightning and rain and just the elements. Um, and then we could we could find ways to make this thing scary and, and, and pithy. And we said, all right. And we start. That's how we that's how we uh, stumbled forward into it. And we wound up shooting in September, the middle of September. This was 79? 78? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and uh now we have we 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 make the movie and we have it, and we are blessed by having a really nifty ending mm-hmm. with with Jason coming up out of the water that nobody saw coming. It was a real it was one of the great sucker punches of all time. And um, you've got Carrie and you've got Jason at the end of Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, but, and and uh, I mean none of this would have happened without Carrie. Um, which was Brian De Palma, I think. His hand coming, yeah, the hand, hand coming out of the grave or something, which yeah. was, which yeah. was a moment. Yeah, but it, it, but the Friday the Thirteenth thing just had popcorn going, you know, yes. up in the air and, and people screaming and people laughing. And anyway, screened it for Paramount, among other things. And um, Frank Mancuso was head of Paramount uh, of distribution, and he decided to really roll the dice. He thought that this movie had something and that it could really catch on, and what he decided to do was to treat this movie as if it were a Hollywood movie. Wow. And he decided to open it nationally mm-hmm. with that trailer you were talking about mm-hmm. um, and see what happens. And it had never been done before. Never, never. Uh, the only well, that's never been done with a independent with a little indie zero, with yeah. a zero thing. The I think the first one they ever did that with was um, Jaws, which was in seventy six. I think. Yeah, and then a few other yeah. uh, spots along the way. But he wanted to try this out, yeah. and he did. And as a result, it it exploded. It became it became a phenomenon. For being a phenomenon, you know. Well, what's interesting is, you know, in 1977, when 20th Century Fox put out Dario Argento's movie, Suspiria, they created the name of another company. They called it International Classics so that they hid their involvement with it. (laughs) You know, John Carpenter's movie, Halloween, obviously opened a lot of doors because it became the most successful independent movie of all time Mm -hmm. doing... 50 million bucks in its initial release, but it was through Compass International. It was not through a studio. So this was the first time a major studio did such a disreputable film (laughs) (laughs) and did it proudly and widely. And Mm. they certainly had to have opened themselves up to a lot of criticism from shareholders or, and the public and, and the critics and the moral guardians of, Mm -hmm. of our society. What, What was that like at that time when the movie opened? We didn't, um, with Friday, we did not get a whole bunch of the same kind of backlash we got with really? Last House. Oh, no. no, no. Okay. I mean, Last House was very well, special. Was really, very really special this, backlash. Yeah. No, it, but um, this was a major studio doing basically a slasher movie with 13 people getting killed. The know? peculiarity of it was, well, two things. One is that when people left the theater, they were usually giggling and, and punching each other. And it's as if they got off a roller coaster. Right. But it was a, a fun event. And... Um, and it didn't um, make any. Uh, it, it, it didn't revel in the darkness. Right. It was just a, a lighthearted a, romp of arrows exactly. through the throat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's uh, it's the lighter side of homicide. You know, that's, the, <laughs> that's kind of the way we looked at that work. But uh, anyway, no. And I think that Paramount could have been open for a lot of problems if it hadn't done so well. Right. But because it did so well, then all is forgiven and nobody yes. even thinks it was a wise business choice. It was the money was just there. All you had to do is step up and take it. And Frank Mancuso had the balls to do it. And in fact, he did. And he did. And uh, and that's 
that became, you know, uh, how, how it, the whole thing really did get launched. So at what point was the decision made to go with Friday the 13th Part 2? Oh, a uh, couple of weeks later. Yeah, as soon it as was, it opened. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, I don't know if it was two weeks later, but it was, uh, yeah, we, we've got this thing and we have to, we have to keep rolling with it. And so uh, I think the, the decision um, came pretty quick, pretty yeah. quickly. And, and uh, in my decision not to, uh, not to make it, um, not to direct, came at the same, pretty much the same time. You know, Steve Miner, who was a very close friend of mine and who had worked with me since Last House, um, wanted to direct. And so he wound up directing it. And, and my wife was an assistant editor and, and she got to cut it, oh, uh, wow. be in the cutting room. Um, and uh, so that, you know, the family was still stuck all around it. But I didn't... Um, I didn't know where to go with Friday the 13th. You know, it was sort of a whodunit and it had this backstory that, that, uh, about Jason, but nobody thought that nobody had a clue that Jason was going to become what he became. In every, yeah. yeah. He, and, he became the Michael Myers. Of, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. but that's, you know, Jason or Michael Myers or Freddie as the boogeyman, mm-hmm. that, became sort of emblematic of of what the horror audience at some level seemed to respond to and seemed to want. Um, there was a tongue-in-cheek element to this anti-hero as well, in some ways. Well, Less so with Jason than, like, than maybe <laughs> Freddy, but uh, not a very articulate uh, no, joke slinger. No, no, but, no. Yeah. but I think when, when, uh, when West did uh, Nightmare, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he kind of caught that caught that double-edged thing where he could, uh, he had this character that was so strange mm-hmm. and verbal and wry and is sometimes funny um, that just sort of is in and out of your nightmares. And I, and I think that, um, I think of all of the, of all of the um, icons, I think that, that Freddy's certainly the strongest. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the two of you began your careers together and both of you created what became the first two real franchise horror mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. And interesting observation. And, and then when they when they both seemed like they were going downhill, and they, you, <laughs> they had you to know, meet. <laughs> they had to meet, and then you had the grudge match of all time. That, that was that for that for me was uh, uh, just completely cracked me up because <laughs> I uh, I just thought of Freddie versus Jason. I, there's a, there's a... Now, that's a standoff. There's a standoff. <laughs> it's like uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it just it just was going to be terrific. And actually, we got a uh, new line um, on board, and Paramount said, sure, you can do whatever you want with it. And, and we're able to finally uh, get that movie made. And uh, the audience really did respond. It just became, I've never seen anything like that. I want to yeah. go see that. And, and it was... Uh, we were very, very fortunate with that. So what was behind your decision not to direct af- after the first Friday the 13th, the, the future installments, especially number two? Well, I'll, I'll just preface this, because <laughs> I think I would probably do it way different if it were tomorrow. But Well, nobody knew it was yeah, going to be this tidal wave and, of a dozen and, movies. Uh, yeah. And I... Um, I thought of Friday the 13th as kind of a sample reel. And, you know, I was coming from New York, and I, I didn't know how Hollywood really worked. And when it came out to Los Angeles, I didn't have a, a real mentor or somebody who could walk me down uh, the aisle and tell me what's important, what's not important, none of those things. So I had, I had this sort of notion that the people who ran studios would sit at a desk like this and they had behind them file cabinet full of scripts and things that they really wanted to get made if only they could find the right director. <laughs> and so I'd go into these meetings and essentially I'd be saying, well, you must have something that I could like. 
Why yeah. don't you give me a few things and I'll give you some feedback was the, ah, <laughs> was the overall. Okay. And the one thing in the world, they said, well, tell us about yourself and everything. What they really wanted me to say more than anything else was, I want to do another Friday the 13th. What could be better than that? Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and but I had no I had no idea that that was the case. And I, I really wanted to um, do something else. I, I had done this thing and it was and it was I was fortunate that it that was successful, but I didn't think of it as a big thing. Right. Uh, it became it was one a big step. thing. Yeah. It was a step, yeah. And so, you know, what would be the next step or the step after that? And 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 now I'm I'm sort of like in the candy store looking around trying <laughs> to figure out, you know, what are you doing here? You know, how how can I get some of that? Yeah. And yeah. uh you know, and so I, I, I didn't want to do that and plus the, you know, the price of uh, the price of making the movie, especially you know at the time with the people I was dealing with, was really really high. And it was just so so physically and emotionally draining. They had well, directing to do with movies has a lot. Of that's long a, that's hours a, and, by itself. Yeah, but then yeah. when you're when you're spending your nights trying to get the crew paid. Or trying to, you know, get checks that'll clear and and all this all this other stuff. The going indie on. world, yeah. It was so. Um, I just had no desire to go back and do that that part of it again. So I I kind of was on the sidelines as a as a cheerleader, right? And so uh, your role as producer was mainly cheerleading. Yeah. Well, yes. I I think at the uh, at the. <laughs> I think at its most aggressive, I was a cheerleader. But you know, uh, <laughs> so it was you... real. It was really up to uh, really up to Steve and and the, the guys from Boston and who invested in the movie and um, and I I just wished everybody well. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, how was that as deep as your involvement went? Because you you're credited as a producer on all of these and and the remake. Mm-hmm. You were a producer on mm-hmm. that. Were you creatively involved in them? A little bit, but yeah. I mean. Um, I, I spent, um, I spent, subsequently, I spent a a lot of time trying to figure out what makes, what makes a movie a movie? What, what is it that goes on in here? And if I were to contribute to Friday the 13th part two or part three or whatever, um, I didn't know. I mean, like, I just didn't know what in the world you would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it more interesting, Steve's notion of doing Friday the 13th in 3D. Great. So he was bringing that, that was his idea, and, that, and that's what he brought to it. But it wasn't that structurally, you know, there was something about the iconic f- franchise that was starting up. There were, you know, we're just ignorant. Yeah, Jason became the centerpiece when he was basically just the off-screen and presence, sometimes yeah. on-screen presence that and was just dread personified. Exactly. He was the boogeyman in his, yeah. in his own way. Yeah. And it's why I think he, he works best in a, in a mask, and it's always a mistake to, to reveal the face of the boogeyman. Everybody wants to see it, yeah, yeah but don't show it. It's this, well, what uh, do you personally love about movies? Do you go to the movies a lot? Do you watch at <laughs> home? Do you, uh, do you consider yourself a, a film fan these days? Yeah, I I uh, I think I am. A, I'm certainly a I'm a movie fan. Yeah, um, and a lot of movies are now you know uh, available on 75 inch LED yeah, <laughs> screens exactly. with great sound. Yeah. So it's 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 still a movie even though you're watching it in your house. Um, yeah, I I I think that movies have the ability to 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 move me, mm-hmm. and and it's an emotional. Um, it's a storytelling experience, and and movies well told are good stories. Right, and I I think that uh, I, in many ways I I, I kind of like you know more like the glass is half full rather than half empty. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, uh, I out of self defense or I don't know what, but maybe just its own fascination of. Studied this 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 business of the, of the story that takes place in the hundred minutes, mm-hmm. um, and uh, how does it work? And how does it work well? And what what's a mistake, or what would be a mistake? What did I do last year that I never want to do again? And mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, I would, you know, for 30 years, I guess, I saw, must have seen every popular film that was ever released and then a whole bunch of other things behind it. But when I looked at a popular film, um, no matter, you know, its shortcomings, um, it was like I'd ask myself, what did they do right? Mm-hmm. What's happening here? You know, I think that, I think that um, the, the, the question that I lived with uh, for forever was like, what if a Martian came down? And he walked around, he's got a report home, and he'd report home that, that these human beings in droves would go into a dark room once or twice a week and look at these great big oversized flat images up on a screen, and they'd sit there for two hours and come out, and it was as if something important had happened. Mm-hmm. It's like, what happens in that room? <laughs> what, you know, just what happens in that room? What is, and I thought, and you, that's, so the question becomes, what's a movie? It doesn't right. mean what is a horror movie versus a, a, a love story sure, or just something else. what is a movie But what is a movie? What happens there? What makes people say, that was a good movie, or that was crap? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it couldn't be the same two hours. And, and I think that, I think therein is the, is the story. And that's, I, I love being, I love being transported. Mm. And, I, and I love getting so emotionally caught up and that I either want to cheer at the end or, or cry at the end of the love story or, you know, just be so glad that the dogs finally got home <laughs> after all this. <laughs> all this the incredible stuff. journey comes Ex- to an end. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, and, I, and I love that. And I, and I love that movies can do that. And they surely do it um, do it to me this week, I don't know, two or three times. But tell me and, the things that have excited you lately. Lately. Lately, meaning the last few years. No, I know. I, know. Um, I think that um, the stuff that really, I think, from just a personal point of view, is, is that it was always believed that, and you know this from your work with Stephen King, is that novels usually make lousy movies because what makes them good novels is the layers and the depth and the, the detail yeah. that you can get get into and if you've only got a hundred minutes you're not gonna you know you're gonna get a very thin slice of it but with you know started i guess with the sopranos when all of a sudden there was this 10-hour arc mm-hmm. that suddenly all of these great stories became you know possible and and what's more is we all got to you know, go along for these these wonderful long rides, and it didn't make any difference. It was Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or whatever. Do you and find television exciting you more than movies? Like yes, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, more certainly more than the movies that are readily available. Well, it's a good time for TV. Oh, it's never. I don't think it's ever been. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I think that um, what we get for free on television is vastly superior to almost all the movies that we got when we were when we were growing up. Um, the the level of craft is terrific. The level of, of the, the writing and the acting is really really good. It's not like it's the C team. It's not the junior varsity. The the varsity is playing this game yeah. and they're playing it really well. I think HBO changed everything because they threw out censorship. They threw out commercials and it had to look like m- most people watched their movies on television, so television had to compete with movies, and HBO was the first one to do that. So then people started having to compete with HBO and Showtime and the FX, and you know it, mm-hmm. it just amped up. And with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, all of that, you have to have great production value, and you can tell stories. Well, you know when we did the Stand, that was. Told in eight hours for this. Was it eight hours? It was eight hours. Yeah, it was four two-hour movies or ninety-minute movies without mm-hmm. commercials and things. But yeah, you're you're competing with movies rather than competing with television now because that's yeah. how most people get their feature films. They watch it on the same delivery system they watch their TV shows. Right. And and I you know I don't know. I I find myself so often not going to the theater. Yeah. To. Uh, to see a movie, I'd, I'll see it when I get, you know. Yeah. The yeah. urgency to see it in the theater um, kind of disappeared. And I think it's partly the technology. Like, when I went, when I go to a movie, I, I, try, I generally try to sit in the sixth row center. 
Right. Because I just found... It's immersive. That it was immersive, and your peripheral vision is full, mm. and you get the sound, and you just can, it's easy to get easy to get caught up. And you couldn't get that at home because if you ever got close to the TV set, all you could <laughs> see was the golf balls, right, and then the pixels, and I was awful. <clears throat> but when the LED screens got really good, and the home theater became really good, and now, now 4K, you yeah. can sit, you can sit, you know, really close to a TV screen. And get the same immersive feeling and wonderful sound. And so that you can experience, you know, a lot of what happens in a theater. What uh, is your home setup like? Oh. Uh, 70 well, inch, 75 inch? No, I have, a, I, have a, I have a projector that uh, I think it's 110, 100, okay, 110 yeah. inches. And, and then, surround sound. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, you know. Big speakers. Home theater. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a home theater. And, uh, but then uh, those are sort of like, that's become a sort of a special event uh, mm-hmm. room. And, uh, but day in, day out, we just have uh, really big screen LEDs all around the house and just watch them. Did you not want to be thought of as a horror film director? No, I, I, uh, I, I did not... Initially, I did not want to be known as a horror director only. Right. Um, and it I, is a ghetto. <laughs> well, it yeah, can be it, a ghetto. it surely can yeah. be. And, and, um, and I think that it really has to do with the material. Mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, I've, I've worked uh, for so many years and, you know, got so many submissions from right. studios and just from agents and stuff like that. And each script... Is kind of worse than the last one, <laughs> and you know I started to refer to it as affirmative action for the writing impaired. <laughs> you know, it's just kind Perfect. of the the uh, present company accepted. <laughs> but, That's okay. But no, 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 because it, because I mean, the, in the simplest forms, horror films that come over the transom don't have a second act. No, right? Yeah, and they are just, usually not about people; they're about events. They're about the deaths. And, you know, the events that happen and that right. and that. And, you know, what, you know, when you read a, a Stephen King story, it fascinates me how he just tells these stories about people. I get all it's caught so up in the human. people. Yeah. They, it's the humanity of it. And then this other element, you know, the supernatural element usually feeds in, but doesn't necessarily, and sometimes you kind of wish it didn't. But it's good drama first, is what I've always found about the good genres. Right, and that's the stuff that that you can't, that you you just don't get in regular scripts. Yeah, Uh, he's really special in that regard, and that's the sort of stuff that I I love most about it. Well, you had a real change of pace with a big success with Spring Break. Yeah. Still with young actors and and a young audience that we aimed at and everything but tell me about that experience how that was like a was it 180 degrees from doing horror no well no, it wasn't 180 degrees from um from what i was trying to accomplish um i had done and i told before friday the 13th i'd done two of these sort of sweet children's films where right. i hoped that they were sweet um and then i did um a, a, Friday the 13th, which I thought of as sort of a, my, you know, sample reel or something. I, yeah. I, you know, I can do this stuff. What do you want to, you know. Well, you proved and, it. And I wound up, uh, I wound up doing um, uh, Strangers Watching with uh, Rip Torn and Kate Mulgrew. Right. And, and that was based on a best-selling book, too. It was. Yeah. And it, that, had, that had all kinds of possibilities, which I'm not sure I, I really took advantage of. Hmm. Um, I I uh, I think I could do that. I know I could do that movie a lot What better. do you think you left out of it? Not that I left out. It's that I didn't understand the whole the, the whole dynamic of, of a protagonist who has wants and needs. You know, he wants right. something but needs to do something else, and they're usually at, at odds, and these mm. are the things that, that, that create the character arc. And I didn't understand that as well as... I do now, and I didn't. I don't think I understood it well as it as it happens in in movies. And it, right. you you don't have the time. You've got to be much more selective because you've only got this hundred minutes or so. And uh, you know, it's I get anyway. I, so I finished uh, uh, Strangers Watching, and 
I, I, you know, I said, I wanted to do cleanse the palate, you know, and right. we go back, like do beach party bingo. Yeah, let's go to or, the beach. Let's yeah. go to the beach. <laughs> let's go have some fun and sunshine. And, 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 um, I was able to, uh, get, uh, Sony or Columbia at the time, right. um, uh, to go along and do it. And I said, great, let's, let's do this thing. And, and, and it was a big hit. It was, and it was, it was um, and it was fun. And it was all, it was only about having fun. And, and, uh, you know, you go, you go to see it and then an hour later you forgot about it, but it was just fun to be there. Certainly well, your, at the time. The biggest scale thing you did was a couple of years later. Um, and it really was, uh, you did a segment of Trapped Ashes uh, anthology movie. Right. But Deep Star Six was a big science fiction underwater adventure. And it's also the last feature film you directed, right? No, I directed, uh, uh, let's see, was it? Uh, well, it, I Extreme Close-Up. Extreme yeah. Close-Up, yeah. which XCU, uh, yeah. is coming back. Uh, right, right. But, um, yeah, I, 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 it was the... Um, and I, I didn't plan to direct uh, Deep Star Deep Star Six. No, really, I, I didn't. Um, and how did that come about? The director that 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 we uh, we wanted to um, use was going to do it, and there was a writer's strike. And after the writer's strike, the movie that he had committed to before ours, he felt an obligation to go forward because they, now they could do it. Right. And we had done a bunch of prep. And started to spend money, and Mario Casar um, said, "We've got to make this movie. Why don't you direct it?" And I thought about it for about you know five minutes. I said, <laughs> "Yeah, sure," because uh, I knew all of the things that I that I thought it needed to be, and and so on. You were um, originally just going to produce it. Then. Yeah. Okay. Just going to produce it, not <laughs> you know. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's. It, but you're ending up producing and directing. Yeah, which is and I and I think that there are things in that movie that I to this day I really like a lot. Yeah, and uh, you know I. But it's very different. The scale of it was big, mm-hmm. and all of the underwater stuff and all the special effects and the like was that something new to you? Was it yes? Like new um, toys? Well, it wasn't completely new to me, but um, you know, no, I don't know. We had heard about. Spielberg had problems with a shark, so all right, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're don't worry about that. We, you know, we got this covered, and yeah, yeah. and I, we had we had this monster. And as it turns out, it was it was molded out of foam and everything, and they, oh, no. they got it in the water, and it's oh, going to no. do all these great things. You got story, the storyboards were great, and the thing the thing just sunk. Yeah, basically, it, soaks it just, up water it just and, soaks up water <laughs> and can't move. And it's like, what, the <laughs> fuck, what are we going to do? What was the budget of the movie? I don't remember. It was around ten or twelve million dollars, right. you know. Uh, but there was also there was a pressure that there was three um, underwater movies, and there was the Abyss, um, um, Deep Star Six, and I can't remember. Um, right, right. Um, help me. I don't let remember. Me, let me see. Uh, Leviathan. 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 Right. Yeah. And so the idea was the idea was the first one out. Would you know? Would, would it was going to take the gold. It was yeah. going to take the gold, and so it was a big push to to be the first one out. And you know, the the thinking was that everybody has been underwater, and for too long. And if you're underwater too long and you can't breathe, it's just terrifying. It's just and so that we have that as a you have that as a baseline, you know, for the audience to uh, to understand. And I think everything I just said is true. But there's nothing about being underwater that makes an audience want to come in and experience it again. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> oh, okay. I think that, yes. no, and it had one to, claustrophobic it, experience under yeah, the sea and, is enough. And right? so that I think that hurt all three of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the abyss was a, a terrific, um, a terrific experience. exercise, but it, it had the same issues. Right. And you, you know, not that when you were in it, you felt claustrophobic, but Let's go to a let's go to a thriller where you're going to be trapped underwater. <laughs> I, you know, I'm claustrophobic. I, yeah, I, I so know. you you I'm get out. it, right? <laughs> yeah, and so I, as, you know, as a as a uh, as a poster, uh, it didn't it, it didn't work as well. I think the message was clear, and it was just something that the audience didn't respond to. Do you still want to direct? Oh yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I really, I really, um, uh, I really. Have grown to 
um, like directing in the last, you know, several years. So it took a while for you to get to the point where you actually liked yeah. the process? Well, it's that, that I've been doing a lot of work with, with actors and scene work, and I've been doing stuff that that isn't a means to an end. Right. It's just to tell a story. And it could right. be five minutes or ten minutes. Um, and So just the purity of it. Yeah, just, just that part of it. And, and working with actors um, in, a, in different ways. That, you know, actors are not puppets that you as Giacopetti, um, or, or, Gepetto, or, yeah. or Gepetto rather, um, are, are manipulating... And they're not the enemy. They can be your partners. They can yes. really, really help. And, it, you know, and how do you they do that? They can make it how even can, more than what you oh, planned. Yeah. much more. Absolutely. And um, that, that's a, that, that was, that's, there's a real lesson. And I've just learned more and more about how wonderful it is working with actors. Okay. Do you have a dream project? I think uh, Friday the Thirteenth, Thirteen. That's the, ah, <laughs> no. there you go, Thirteen, Thirteen. Yeah. No, no I, 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 um, I, I find myself uh, being drawn to a lot of stories, and I, I think that this, you know, um, the stories that I really love the most are Triumph of the Human Spirit kind of stories, mm-hmm. and and uh, if that works, then I'm, you know, I'm. I'm Really happy, but that can be in any number of different forms. I right, think any media. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to. Um, there's there's something about this is me as a producer talking, but I, I I think that when you're thinking about making a movie, I, I tell people that I think it's really important to think about what the poster is. Now, posters don't mean nearly what they used to mean, right? But nevertheless, this is a still image that makes a promise to the audience and says, this is what you're going to see and it's going to be really good. I mean, the, the core transaction is, as a producer, as a director, is you make this movie and then you stop a stranger on the street, right? And you say, wait, 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 come here. I want you to, I want you to come over here and, and sit down and watch this movie for two hours. I promise you it would be really good and give me some money. <laughs> yeah. And let me tell you a story. Yeah, yeah and and, and you'll really be glad that it, glad that it happened. And the guy's really reluctant to give you his twenty bucks or whatever it is. But no, 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 it'll be good. And so everything about about what you're going to do from the beginning <clears throat> has to address that because that is the key. Uh, it's not that pe- somebody who you don't know is just going to wander in and love it, and he'll tell tell they'll tell their friends is that. You know, what does it look like and what message comes off the poster? Because you're making a promise to the guy that you're going to stop in the street of what it's going to be and that he's going to like it. And if you stick to that promise, then you have a really good shot. But if you wind up just sort of writing a script and not know who it's for or what it's about, you're going to get lost. And, And you say, you know, what does the poster look like? And the writer will say, well, I don't know. They, you know, <laughs> advertising guys do that. Yeah, but what would you, you know. Keep it in mind. Yeah, yeah. You, what is it? Are, is it action adventure? Is it drama? Is it a comedy? Is it got a stars? No stars. Is it, you know, what is it? And, and I think that um, that's, that's really a, a key thing that I think really gets overlooked. And some, one of those things I think that you should look at early. And because then everybody sort of gets on the same page. And that's how Friday the 13th started. Exactly. With that image in variety. And it became this iconic series of films that everyone around the world knows. And you did that. <laughs> that's amazing. And that, yeah. And that's, uh, that is a very good example of, of the poster. Yeah. Um, and uh, you made a mark. I did. You did. And I really appreciate you coming and joining us on the show. This is well, really great. My to pleasure. Have you, I, you know, I awesome. think it's great talking movies. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank man. you, man. Thanks to everybody Bye. out there. Um, if you want to reach us on Twitter, it's at postmortemmg. It's postmortemgram on Instagram, and you can see all of the video interviews and making ofs I've done over the years at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Please be in touch with us. Let us know what you think of the show, and. Rate and review us on iTunes and your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. 
download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.